0: Mediation, a component of the role of the second person is the idea of mediation. He mediates between God and us. Mediation is something that a lot of us are engaged in. So I don't want you to think of that term in a sterile way. Think of it in a very pragmatic, um, instrumental way. It's very pragmatic, instrumental. What is mediation? Mediation is a functional component that operates between two entities. Does that make sense? Good. That'll, that'll help us with the, um, with the role of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the role of Christ. So in theology, what we do is we call the gospel the person. Do you see that? And then the work of Jesus Christ. Those are the five words, person and work of Christ. We want to know the person and work of Christ. That's what constitutes the gospel. A person can know about God the Father, but if he does not know God the Son, he doesn't know God in the doctrine of the pardoning of sins. People can know about the one true and living God in general in his ontological nature as cardinal one, there is one God. That is um, monotheism. It is What is held by Judaism is held by Islam and uh, whatever other extractions and expressions of monotheism there are. But when we are dealing with Christology, the study of Christ, we are presupposing a plurality in the Godhead a plurality of persons. So this is what I mean by persons here, the person of Christ. This is what you and I have been dealing with for a while, the person of Christ. Today, we're going to be dealing with his work and what that constitutes in the area of his mediatorial roles. And I say roles uh, plural, which is equivalent to his work. You know, if you don't believe me for what I say, believe me for my works sake. And so we want to kind of begin to drill into that uh, tonight. We've been working through our outline, the coming of a Messiah, and we opened up dealing with the eternality of the Son of God, the eternality of the Son of God. It just has to do with the fact that the Son of God has no beginning and he has no what? If that is true of Christ, then what we are assigning to him is ontological equality with God at the level of their nature. Ontology means essence. Ontology is the Greek term ontos, which means true. That which is true, that which is true to its nature, that which is true to its essence, that which is true to its substance is translated in the New Testament truly. Truly, truly. That's the idea. If something is true, that means what it is expressing corresponds to its essence. When you and I are expressing ourselves rightly, then we're being truthful. If we are expressing ourselves according to our nature, I being a man must express myself as a man if I'm going to be what? Truthful if I am a man, but express myself as a woman, I am now lying. That is an adumbration of theology that constitutes idolatry. Idolatry is any and everything that actually becomes an aberration from what it is designed to be. This is why when God says every other God that is called a God is an idol, because it doesn't correspond with the nature character um, <clears throat> attributes of the one true and living God. This is true of you and me too. So if God created us and he did. He created us for a purpose. Everything that he made is made with a fundamental ontos, an ontology of essence for which it is then to express itself in a manner by, by which God being, can be glorified as creator. And, and all the other attributes by which created things can glorify God. Today we're going to be dealing with the person of Christ uh, in terms of his work. We have dealt with his eternality. We can easily deal with his omniscience if we wanted to. He knows all things. We can deal with his omnipotence. He also shares all power with God. Um, And there could be other what we call personal predicating attributes that are exclusive to God. In theology, we call this uh, non-communicable or incommunicable attributes. Like God is all knowing. Nothing else in the universe is. God is all wise. Nothing in the universe is. God is all powerful. God is everywhere present. Nothing else in the universe is. And this is what constitutes the otherness of God from his creation. That makes sense, right? So there are attributes ascribed to God that when you read your Bible, they, they help us understand that God is different from the things that he made. The things that he made are reflections of God, But the things that he made are not equal to God. That's why God would say in the book of Isaiah, to whom then would you make equal to me? What would you create that would carry the same kind of equality of person in essence and expression as I am? This is why he says, I am God alone. And besides me, there is no other. So he, he ascribes that argument to himself. And this is where the Lord Jesus becomes for many people a stumbling block because Christ would do that as well for himself. He would own attributes of which it would uh, on the surface appear to only ascribe to God. So like we learned in John chapter eight, that Jesus said in, in chapter eight, around verse 58 or so before Abraham was, I am that ego, I me, um, is an expression that belongs only to God. And it refers to his eternality. And they wanted to stone Christ for that expression. That would have been Christ owning in his person an attribute that would have described him as something more than a human being, his his eternality. Or when he was talking with Philip in John's gospel, chapter two, and he said, as Philip approached him, ah, an Israelite indeed. And and Philip called it. He called him Philip. He said, Philip, an Israelite indeed. And Philip said, how did you know me? And he says, I knew you when you were under the fig tree. And he was talking in terms of his omniscience, his capacity to see Philip before he came. And that startled Philip, because remember later on, it was Philip who said in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it would suffice us. We'll be satisfied once we can gain a comprehensive understanding of the Father. I'm going to show you a verse in relationship to that in a moment. But do you remember what Christ said? Christ said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So now what is he doing? He's making an equation of relationship between himself as the thing seen and the thing unseen. When he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the father who cannot be seen because he's invisible. So there's an equation, a paradox here. A visible thing is representing an invisible thing. That, that sort of categorical equation doesn't bother us, does it? And the reason it doesn't is because enough of the handmaiden of science has been given to us for us to know that virtually everything made is made by something at its rudimental level that is not seen. We know that now we know that we understand the laws of gravity and the laws of inertia and the the laws of centrifugal force. We understand G force and many we understand the laws of gravity. We understand multiple laws now that we didn't before. And life was a mystery before that. But now we understand that God was telling the truth all along in terms of his wisdom in creation. And the more we humble ourselves, the more we will also learn more about this God that created the heavens and the earth, because we can only know if God tells us. And so mankind has benefited from science to the degree he has submitted to the evidence in relationship to the argument or the proposition. So it is here. Look at uh, First Timothy, chapter two, verse five with me. And I'm going to begin to share with you some of the works of Christ or what we call mediatorial roles. And we're going to be working our way through the Bible from the Old Testament to the New briefly, not comprehensively, but enough to own once again, that axiom that Christ gave him in Psalm 40, verse 7. Look, I am the one who has fully come in the volume of the book. It's what? Written of me. Okay. So it's important. That proposition is a massive claim because if it's true, then any interpretation of the Bible that fails to take into consideration the scope and scale of the person of Christ, any interpretation that fails to do that is an interpretation that is going to fail to understand the intentionality of scripture as God has given it to us. For there is how many gods? And Peter and Paul is talking here. And Paul is a strict Old Testament Torah Jew. Okay, so he knows Torah. He knows he knows the Shema. He knows that there is one God here. O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord, our God is one Lord. Him only shall you serve. For there is one God and one what? Mediator between God. So we have inherent in that second clause the idea of mediation, do we not? We have God as the subject. We have mediation as the action, and we have the mediator himself now as the object here. For there is one God and one mediation or mediator between God and man. And what we have here in theology is an exegetical, an explanation of the prior line. The first line says there's one God. The second line says, and there's one mediator between God and man. So the subject is God and man. Mediation is the issue. Can you explain that? The mediator is Christ. That's called an exegetical. It explains itself. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we could really drill down into the verse and talk about the importance of Christ's mediatorial role at the human level or at the level of anthropos. So we're going to take we're going to take Theos and Anthropos and juxtapose them together for a moment, keeping a line there, because we've already affirmed that Jesus bears the same nature as God. D- did we not? So Jesus is also Theos in nature. OK, that's John chapter one, verse one and two. And the word was God. OK, this is um, <clears throat> A, a, a predicate nom- nominative in the Greek language. And the word was also by nature God. So there is God, there's the word, John 1, 1, and the word also was God. It doesn't mean there's two gods. It means that, and the word bears the same nature as God. Okay. Two persons, one nature. That's the, that's the construct in the Greek grammar. Uh, John knew what he was talking about. So here, what Paul is doing now, he's appealing to the people that he's writing to Actually, he's writing to Timothy, who was a preacher. And he's saying to Timothy, your job is to convince men that there is a way made by God for men to get to God. And it's through the mediation of another man. Did that make sense? Right. So now what we're doing is leaning into the the work of Christ, the work of Christ. That's what we're leaning into now. And that work is going to actually be a category of that can start with, let's say, a a primal point, a secondary, tertiary, and remote points as well. I'm going to just kind of lay this out for us to see that if God has chosen uh, Messiah, our Christos, uh, to be the mediator of the world, and we know that in his uh, ontological personhood, he also is God, How is he going to do that for the benefit of humanity? Well, the first work that he's going to accomplish in order to be a mediator for men is to become himself a what? Right. So this is where we come into the doctrine of incarnation, incarnation. And in as much as we are looking at Psalm 40, verse seven, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, in the totality of the book, in the totality of the scroll, <clears throat> it's written of me. We want to now visit those texts of scripture that affor- affirm that. So what I'm going to argue is that incarnation is his mediatorial work by which he enjoins himself to humanity under different terms and motifs. The first one is the word seed. Okay, the first one is the word seed. The first time this comes up in your Bible is in what we call the um, proto evangel. It's the first evangelical message, which is a warning by God, the father to the serpent himself. So God is the one that announces the coming of his son in Genesis 315. Listen to it so we can work this through. I'm glad you're with me. I hope your minds are so we can kind of just drill down into this for an hour. Then we can open up the floor and deal with some of the crazy stuff going on in our world. And I. So the opening and is a conjunction. He's actually saying something in addition to what he just said. And I this is God talking. This is the father. And I will put enmity. He's talking about a resolve that he's going to engage in. Now that the woman has made a horrible, horrible mistake in thinking that she could have a relationship with the serpent. All right. So that the fundamental error of the woman was that she became egalitarian in her view of the uh, relationship between her and the other creatures. She didn't hold a high view of the hierarchical role of God, man, the creature. And that's a problem in our world presently today, as you know, it opens it when you have a when you have a faulty egalitarian system where everything is equal to everything else. Then the distinction collapses. If everything is equal to everything else, then distinctions do not matter. Now we can shape shift any kind of way and there's no moral culpability to it. Did that make some sense? So like, again, if 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 a horse or a donkey or a cat or a peacock, or any of the hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of creatures on the planet are equal to human beings, then they have the same right of affordability to own the level of value uh, equal to us. And, you know, then we have at the level of of uh, designation, the right to say I'm a dog and a dog has the right to say I'm a human because essentially nothing is ontologically different about us than our phenotypical expression. And so today in our present culture, if a female wants to identify as a male, for her, it's easy. It's just exercising a pseudo divine prerogative called fiat, So, again, I'm giving you theological terms because you're in Bible study. So don't get the heebie-jeebies. Fiat is the um, term that means that God can speak ex nihilo, things into existence that does not exist. Like when he created the heavens and the earth, God spake and they came into being. You and I don't have that divine fiat. We don't have the ability to speak things into existence, notwithstanding the craziness of most of our African-American Pentecostal churches. Just disregard that because it's the highest delusion one could ever exercise. Although I must say the challenge that we do have today around a proposition like I can speak things into existence is that it's not completely wrong in relationship to agency. So we'll talk about that as we as we move further, but animals can't change their essence. Human beings can't change their essence. This is what Jeremiah said, can a leopard change his spots? No, right, you and I are ontologically fixed. We can put on a form of something else but that would be a falsehood. And, and again, we're talking about idolatry, aren't we, at that point? And, and the real battle in our, in our world is this. This is our real battle. If you really want to hear it out, if your minds are with me, the real battle is anytime someone opens their mouth, whether or not they are perpetrating a fraud or telling the truth about any subject we are engaging. That's the real battle. You need to know that. You need to know whether or not when you are engaging someone in any dialogue or conversation, whether they are intentionally or inadvertently perpetrating a fraud. It therefore is incumbent upon you and I as being made in the divine image to honor the concept of truth because the concept of truth is about being able to affirm the reality of God as God has told us that he is the truth. His son has said that he is the truth and all that believe on his son are children of truth. In other words, we should be pursuing truth because there is such a thing. Does that make some sense? Right, in contradistinction to the postmodernist who says everything is simply a subjective reality predicated upon your own perception. There is no such thing as objective truth. That's what they say, right? Right. For them to say that is an contradiction, As we already know, it's basically a fallacy in logic, because if there's no if there's no such thing as objective truth, their proposition is also open to the same ridicule because their proposition is merely subjective. Does that make some sense? All right. So they can't tell me that they can find a line of objective truth that gives them the right to say there's no such thing as objective truth. That's just an internal internal error. And and you and I have to know that. So with Christ as a mediator, he comes first and foremost as a seed. And that seed is the seed of humanity. It's the seed of humanity. Via that seed, Christ now enters into and is able to mediate humanity's plight. He can he he can mediate humanity's plight because angels can't solve the problems that human beings have. And even God in his own ontological nature cannot solve the problem that human beings have. This also then, as we are just dealing with the principles of logic and rhetoric, you know, when you hear people say that God can do anything, you have to say, no, 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 no. God cannot do anything. All right. So there's a bunch of things God cannot do. And he's all right with that, right? Like God cannot in his ontological nature die for your sins. And the reason why is God is immutable. He's unchangeable. God doesn't vary. There's no shadow of turning with him. His ontological nature doesn't diminish and it doesn't expand. God is perfect. You and I are flawed. And therefore, because God cannot, he cannot die. He is the eternal God. So as an eternal God, that is the source of everything that exists. He's from eternity to eternity. He cannot be subject to the mutation of death and death is mutation. Did that make some sense? All right, you're you're in theology class again. And you need to know that because if there are things, that are contrary to God's nature ontologically, or contrary to God's character performatively, God cannot do those things. So ontologically, God can't change. So God in his nature, he cannot die. And performatively, God cannot lie so that in God's nature, he cannot tell a lie. He has to be a God of constant truth. Now, You can follow that syllogism through many different things. It helps you to understand it is not true that God can do anything. That's just that's just kind of like, you know, you're basically letting go of the rigor of your capacity to reason. When you say that God can do anything, God can't do anything and nothing else can do anything. Everything is bound by the limitations of its own nature. Like you can't tell your kids Honey, you can do anything. Stop lying to them. No one, nothing has ever been able to do anything. Now you can do a lot of things, but you can't do anything. I mean, my goodness, come on. Right? So so reason that through and, and okay, here's another beauty too. Limitations are God's mercy. Parameters and boundaries are God's mercy. Did you you guys get that? It's extremely important. So one of the roles of Christ's mediation, the reason that he mediates as our text will teach us is in order to help bring us back into alignment with the parameters that constitutes life. So in point number two, this is how it it says in our outline. and I want to build upon some verses. I'll come back here to Genesis 350, 15 in a moment. So we saw that he was before time, that he uh, existed before time that he created everything, that they exist for his glory in the broader sense and reality. And then he announced his coming. And and, and that concept I can explicate here in a moment. Sub point A, he's revealed in redemptive what? Patterns. He's revealed in redemptive patterns. This is what we're getting ready to learn in our text. And then sub point B, he's revealed in prophetic what? Proclamations. Are you guys seeing that? Well, Genesis 3.15 is a prophetic proclamation. Go back to Genesis 3.15. I want you to see it. Here's what God the Father says. I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the what? So notice that after God interrogates Adam and Eve and brings a judgment on their crime, what he does is interrogates the devil. Now, when he interrogates the devil, he does not question the devil. He questions Adam, who is the head, he questions Eve. But with the devil, there is no question. The judge simply indicts him for the crime. There's no room for the devil to wiggle out of his behavior. Now, if you and I are created in God's image and we get to share his attributes, here is one of them. When you know you're dealing with a snake, don't ask him questions. Now, once you know you're dealing with a snake, you don't give him wiggle room to wiggle out because he will if you give him room. OK, you'll see Jesus having done that many times. Jesus does not have a, an interrogative Socratic dialogue with the serpent. He simply retorts with the devil, with Scripture in a very ex- explicative way to condemn him by the authority of Scripture. Does that make sense? See, and that's because of two things with Christ just to help you. One is Christ is clear on who the devil is. Now, you and I are not always clear on who the devil is, but Christ is. When you know you got a hissing snake with forked tongue and poison in his fangs, please know you just about to get bit. The longer you talking to him, the more probable it is he's going to bite you. He wants to have a lengthy conversation with you because he's just waiting for you to blink so he can strike. Right. So you got to know who he is. And then you got to know who you are. Because Jesus knew who he was. Get thee behind me, Satan. It is written. That's a good way to talk to snakes, isn't it? All right. So now notice what the text says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So we can come back to that a little bit later. It's not hard to do, but it does require some framing. Notice what God does here. He says that Satan has a prodigy. He's talking to Satan himself and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. This is a prophetic word that would lay out the teleological expression of history up to the end of time. This is the verse that explains history. History unfurls from this prophetic word that was given to Satan by God. From here on out, there will be a warfare between you and the woman, between her children and your children. Y'all got that? That's what God said to Satan. Notice Satan is not talking to God. This is the thing you got to learn about snakes too. Snakes will talk to you, but they won't talk to God. Right, so once you are able to get a God representative into the conversation with the snake, he'll shut his mouth. That means if you don't have the authority to represent God in your speaking, you got to get somebody else who does because the devil will actually talk to you if he knows you have no authority. That was the whole point of verse 1 of chapter 3. Has not God said, you can see both of them at the bus stop. Eve's at the bus stop, the devil's at the bus stop. <laughs> Let me just see if she'll have a conversation with me. Hath not God said what she should have did was just turn around and just kept reading her Bible? When that bus going to come. Right. And I'm just using a metaphor. Right. But notice the serpent is not trying to talk to God. He's not trying to talk to God. He he knows the deal. Y'all got that. Now, why would he talk to Christ? Because we must go there. He talks to Christ because Christ has taken on humanity y'all keep it up with me. Our vulnerability is that we're humans. We're not God. Now, if we are beneficiaries of his mediatorial role Christologically and are sons of God, the issue is as a son of God, but also a human being, how am I going to negotiate that hybrid when it comes to the devil? That makes good sense. Right. How am I going to negotiate the fact that I'm a child of God, but I'm a child of man, too, when it comes to the devil? That's a conversation. But listen to what the text tells us. It says between your seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. It shall bruise thy head. And this is God talking to the serpent. Now, Adam and Eve are not in this conversation. This is the intervention of a loving God dealing with Satan. This is the intervention of a loving God dealing with Satan. The loving God has already admonished his children, has he not? Now he's saying, get out the way. Let me deal with your eternal foe. Let me let him know what the boundaries are. Let me let him know what the geography is. Let me let him know what the landscape in the theater is. Let me let him know what the conflict will be. All of my people will be at war with you. Did that make some sense? Not all of humanity. Not all of humanity, all of God's people. OK, we, we will know this because Satan will have a seed and God will have a seed. Now, all keeping up with me. And so God is already implying as he talks to the serpent, he has won the day with human beings. What does that mean? He has access to their minds. How do we know? We're getting ready to move to another example here in a moment. But let me finish the text. It shall bruise our head. That is her seed shall bruise his head, wound him. Actually, literally in the Hebrew, it means to crush his head and you shall bruise his heel. So there will be a ultimate conflict between two seeds, Satan and the seed of the woman, which is who Christ? And they will clash at Calvary and at Calvary. Satan will bruise the heel of Christ. That is his human nature. That is his human nature. The Lord's part of our body uh, uh, in terms of uh, anatomically is our heel, our feet. Did that make sense? And that's where metaphorically the serpent bites. The serpent bites the heel. He doesn't bite the head. He by heal, And our heel is our human nature, okay? So Christ's human nature would be subject to the bite of Satan in that the role of the devil is to steal, to kill, and hopefully to destroy. He will kill Christ in his human nature, but he will not destroy him. But in killing Christ, he destroys himself because while he goes to strike, he hits the heel, the heel crushes the head. Do you see that? That's a slow but uh, simultaneity of a conversion at the cross where the enemy's head is crushed. He's not completely destroyed in the sense that he doesn't have purpose and and sustain reality in the world, he really does. And that's another conversation, but he's crushed in that he is doomed by the once for all work of Christ on the cross. I know you got that. And you shall bruise his heel. So when you look at this verse, we're dealing with the doctrine of the seed now, are we not? We're dealing with the doctrine of the seed. The seed is in relationship to who? Man. Now that prophecy is going to immediately play itself out in a struggle in Genesis chapter four, between Cain and Abel. Y'all got that? Abel is the seed of the woman. Cain is the seed of the serpent. Y'all follow that? And what I am doing now is simply quoting First John chapter four, right? And Cain was of that wicked one, the devil, and he was a murderer from the beginning. And no murderer has eternal life. You guys remember the language? For time's sake, I'm not going to tell you. You should know this by now. But what I am doing is showing you how the Old Testament and the New Testament correspond. John got it. The one who lay in Christ's bosom, he got it that that Cain was a foreshadowing of all who are operating in hostility to Christ, right? And he will kill his brother. This speaks to the proximity and... and uh, uncomfortable uh, uh, intimacy between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uncomfortable intimacy, meaning that throughout history, the battle and conflict at the human level is between brothers and sisters. That's the case right now. Even as we see wars going on around the world, it's men and women who live in as close a proximity of relationship as you possibly can, holding enmity in the heart and killing one another. You guys got that? All right. So in, in your outline under uh, point number three, revealed himself in personal mediation, I want to I move now from the idea of the seed, which is, is I'm not really going anywhere. But what I want to do now, moving from the seed and then also now briefly moving from his humanity, his manhood. This is um, this is not to take away from this centrally in the incarnation. But what your Bible is going to uh, show you is that one, he is the seed. Secondly, therefore, he is a what? Man, but he also now comes in a more uh, uh, what might be said a supranatural sense, supra anthropomorphical sense. And what do I mean by that? He takes on the role and work of an angel. He takes on the role and work of an angel. I'm, I'm skipping metaphors. I'm skipping not, not metaphors, but prophetic images in order for us to grasp that. Um, and you'll see that under point number two, point number three, sub point eight, the angel of the what? Angel of the Lord. So here's what uh, theology uh, affords us when we study humanity. When we study humanity, we are looking at the creation of a species by God that brings bewilderment and bewonderment to angels. So you got God, then you have angels, then you have men. This is a universal sort of uh, motif in all religions. God, angels, men, right? And, uh, and angels uh, operate largely in, uh, in, in greater power and greater might and greater proximity to deity than mankind does. But in the biblical narrative, mankind is uh, more precious and more important to God than the angels. Does that make some sense? Right. I'm being a bit... Um, generic with the terminology. I could be a little bit more specific, but hierarchically what the, what the scriptures show us is that God is taking mankind into his bosom as his son, and the angels are called to be servant sons to his sons, if that makes sense. Right. Because they are bearing attributes of God too. The angels bear attributes of God. They really do. The angels are hinted at as being sons of God as well, the good angels. In the celestial dimension, so in the terrestrial dimension, in the physical dimension that you and I operate in, this physical dimension, sons and daughters of God are understood as human beings in general, and then sons and daughters of God are understood in a more precise, redemptive way, particularly. Did that make some sense? And it's important for you to know when scripture will Uh, give the generic uh, qualifications of human beings made in the Imago Dei, and therefore in that sense they are are, uh, sons and daughters of God. That makes sense. But in the more particular sense of redemptive realities, larger covenant uh, strategies on God's part, the children of God are men and women who are brought into fellowship with God via God's own son, Jesus Christ, and therefore are what are called little creoles or crystals or Christians because our relationship with God is now through the anointing. We are lifted up out of mere humanity where we are subject to the curse of the seed of Satan. That makes sense. We are lifted up out of the curse of the seed of Satan because the seed of Satan is his ability to govern all of humanity while as yet they are in rebellion and disobedience to God. Mankind is walking in enmity and hostility to God. And that's why Jesus says you are of your father, John eight forty four, and the works of your father you will do. You shall know them by their. Right. So, you'll know the children of the devil from the children of God. That's specific New Testament language, is it not? and so the children of the devil will be operating with qualities and characteristics and and schematics and plans and goals and objectives and ambitions that reflect satan And the children of God will be operating out of qualities, characteristics, ambitions and strategies and schemes that reflect the true and the living God and more particularly the work of Christ. In the world, this is your your sort of binary uh, framework that we deal with in Scripture. The angels come into play as a much more expedient mediatorial agent to help the sons of God navigate their way through the world. What Jesus would say that every one of God's children brought into this world have angels. Their angels are always before the face of my father. This is a language that infers that heaven is filled with a host of angels and their assignment is to assist the heirs of salvation. Y'all got that? That's Hebrews chapter two, verse one and two. Um, Hebrews chapter one, the latter part of Hebrews chapter one. Let's affirm that so that we can go on. I just wanted to put that in the ether so you can kind of know, kind of know the relationship between the angels, And human beings, because that becomes a slippery slope as well. If we misinterpret the role of angels, we're in chapter one, starting at verse 13 and 14. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Hebrews chapter one, uh, verse 13, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. I will be going back there shortly. Are they not all ministering spirits? Are they not all ministering spirits? So now notice what an angel is. He is a spirit. It is a spirit. And its job is to do what? Minister. Now, we talked about that at Lent when we dealt with the angels. You guys remember that? We dealt with worshiping angel, angels, warrior angels, protecting angels, messenger angels, worshiping angels. We dealt with that whole category and list of, of angels in terms of their assignment. They're all ministering. and angel ministers. Now, notice what it says. Sent forth to minister for them who shall be what? Heirs of salvation. So whenever you see angels in scripture, they're doing two things. They're engaging in worship and in warfare. Right. So I'm just going to give you that simple pattern because I'm going to show you something that you've got to be able to swivel on. Angels in the celestial dimension. Are doing exactly the same thing that God's people do in the terrestrial dimension. Angels in the terrestrial, spiritual, non-corporeal dimension worship God, serve God, and fight warfare. Okay, which is what we do in the terrestrial dimension. So it's important to know that that celestial dimension is the a priori of this terrestrial dimension. A priori is another theological term that means the pre-existing world is reflected by our world. It was before our world. It's the world that models our world and our, uh, that, that predicates our world. And we model that world. Does that make sense? All right. So it's important for you and I to think through, um, the, the, um, the correlation between angels and men. So when you go through your Bible, you will see the intervention of angels, But that only follows because since the serpent was able to penetrate into humanity, demons are now able to invade the space of human beings. And because demons can invade the space of human beings, the warfare has been brought from heaven down to earth. So now in the earth realm, angels and demons are at war and the angels are serving on the behalf of God's people for God's glory. That makes sense, right? All right. So I'm just laying that out for you. And the quintessential angel, uh, chief angel, captain of the Lord's army is said to be the angel of the Lord. And we know him to be who? Jesus so let's let's work through that. There should be a question that comes up on that, but I'm going to leave that alone. How to deal with these categories. We can talk about it later, but go with me to Exodus 23, verse 20. I want you to see it briefly before we go on. You can ask questions. Be ready for questions. You don't have to be passive. Everything that is said is not always fully explicated. And so it does not follow that just because I say something, it's comprehensive enough for you to just bob your head and agree. I can make a proposition and it can open the door for 50 oppositional questions. Right. For one reason, I could be wrong. <laughs> Secondly, I can be deficient in my explanation, even if I am right. Right. And so some truths have so much room for nuance that we can have great conversations around it. Right. But that really uh, also assumes that you're thinking deeply on these things these matters. So now notice what it says. This is, the, this is God talking to Moses. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way. This is what God told Moses to tell the children of Israel. Now, who is that angel? It's Jesus. And his role is what is called a forerunner. Now, a forerunner is an individual that goes in front of the people to clear the landscape to make sure that the path to the goal is clear. And the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 4 that Christ is our forerunner who has entered into the veil for us. This is why it's so important to know your Bible. Because when you read a verse like this, you should have two or three Bible verses running through your head. I do. And I go, man, what a beautiful concept. Not only is the angel of the Lord, he's the one that charts our destiny. So now you can take this verse. And if this angel of the Lord, you are persuaded is Jesus. Now, you know why he said in John 14, I am the way. I am the hadas. You're, 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 you're coming behind me because I carved out the path for you. I am the truth and I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one carves out the path. You follow me. It will be reality for you and it will result in life, right? This is a beautiful truth that he's laying out here. Behold, I send my angel before you to keep you in your way and to bring you into the place, which I have what? Isn't that John 14, six and seven, right? If it were not so, I would not have told you. So he's saying, I'm going ahead of you like I did for them. In the same way in which Christ carved out a pathway to protect the children of Israel to enter into the promised land, so Christ has carved out a pathway for glory for us. He is our forerunner. That makes sense, right? So now think about the angel of the Lord. He not only carves out the path as a forerunner, but he comes back and accompanies us on the journey. He comes back and accompanies us on the journey. In your own mind, what you get to do is ask yourself, how many places in the Old Testament do I have a conscious knowledge of the presence of the angel of the Lord? Because remember, lo I what? Come in the volume of the book. So everywhere that I find the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is Christ coming in his mediatorial role as the angel of the Lord. That makes sense, right? So I'll just give you a couple because I know it's Friday and you're slow. I remember, he mediated the children of Israel in the wilderness with Balaam. Remember Numbers chapter twenty-four, where Balaam is acting a fool, and and the donkey was smarter than him, and and he he thought he could he could just force this donkey to do what he wanted to do. And the book of Numbers tells us around Numbers twenty-five or so. Uh, 24, it's Numbers 24. Go there. I just want you to see it briefly, uh, just in case you haven't, uh, you forgot about it. That is the angel of the Lord. 22, 26. All right. Okay, here it is. Um, well, actually, yeah. But, um, let me see here. You can start back at verse 23. And the, and the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field and Balaam smote the ass to turn her back in the way. But the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyard, vineyard, a wall being on either side and the wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself unto the wall and crushed Balaam's foot again, the wall and her and smote her uh, and he smote her again. So I'm, I'm stopping there because you see what's going on. The angel of the Lord is intervening. He's And he's intervening in a near proximity. He hasn't gone miles in front of the donkey. He has gone a few feet in front of the donkey. And he's opposing the enemy of God's people, right? Because Balaam wants to engage in enchantment, saying witchcraft, and demonology, necromancing to condemn the people of God. So here the Lord Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, is immediately intervening in a spiritual warfare. Does that make sense? And it's a warfare that the people of God don't know. Didn't I tell you that before? They're, they're meandering about, in the regions of Moab. They're about to get hoodwinked by a bunch of religious chicks. Y'all know that, right? But the angel of the Lord is intervening to keep them from becoming fully demonically possessed. And this is what the Lord Jesus does. And so notice what it says in verse 26. I want to keep moving, certainly, but I definitely want us to capture this. And the angel of the Lord went further, stood in a narrow place where there's no other place to turn either to the right or left. So now the battle is on because this is a full frontal engagement. Verse 27. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled and he smote the ass with a staff. Now, here comes the here comes the conversation and the Lord opened the mouth of the ass. And she said, Balaam, what have I done unto thee uh, that you have smitten me these three times? So now the ass is reasoning with Balaam, right? The ass is reasoning with Balaam. And what does Balaam do? Reason back with the ass. This is where human beings mess up. Read the next verse. And Balaam said to the ass, because you have mocked me. I would, there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill thee. And this is where I was telling you about uh, narrative parallelisms. Narrative par- parallelisms because Balaam is the master of this ass as Christ is the master of the church. Balaam is mad at the ass as Christ is mad at Balaam. Balaam wants a sword to kill his ass and Christ has a sword to kill Balaam. See those parallelisms? And they're there uh, as an important example and reminder of the celestial realm predicating the terrestrial realm. Does that make some sense? So and often down here on our part, you and I are acting in very incongruent ways in our relationship with God. And we can set up God being an adversary to us when we're an adversary to him. Did you get that? You can have that caveat. It's really true. If you oppose God, he will oppose you. Isn't that what he says? God will always, it doesn't matter whether you're saved or not, he will always resist the proud. No human being, no creature is going to usurp God's authority, even if you call yourself a child of God. And particularly if you call yourself a child of God. Did that make some sense? Right. So now the next verse, because I want to move on and show you something inherent in the, in the, uh, I want to keep going look at maybe verse 32, uh, 33, keep going. Okay, here it is. So verse 32, and the angel of the Lord said, so now the angel of the Lord is going to speak. And I want to show you how to identify when the angel of the Lord is the marquee uh, messenger, Malak, when, 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 when this is, The Lord Jesus himself, rather than a regular angel, there are regular angels like Gabriel and Michael and others who came into play, but they never spoke in the first person as if they were God. They never express personal predications of characteristics that constituted deity. If they spoke, they were simply messengers saying what God said. Did that make some sense? The categorical distinction between regular angels and the angel of the Lord is the regular angels would never attribute to themselves uh, the, the, the divine nature of incommunicable attributes. Whenever you hear the angel of the Lord saying, Your way is perverse before me. Now you've got God talking. Notice what it says. Because your way is perverse before me. That's why I went out to withstand you. Verse 33. (sighs) And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned for me, surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. See it? Now this here is an expression of arbitrary righteousness, not arbitrary in the sense that God is whimsical, but it's arbitrary in the sense that God has made a distinction between who should live and who should die here. That's what a judge does. An angel does not have that prerogative within himself. He has to do strictly what God says. God has the right to say here, uh, Balaam, you deserve to die. And this ass is going to live. And you and I can take a nice little uh, snapshot. This here is a uh, sample size of the distinction between uh, the elect and the non-elect, if you will. The rebel false prophet and God's elect, because the rebel false prophet will die and God's elect will be saved. But he or she and they collectively as a whole or individually is only saved because of the intervention of the angel. May that bless you. Because you and I have talked about this before, before I let it go. The precarious nature of the ass is that the ass is operating against God because she is bought by Balaam and Balaam's operating through her. And what that represents is a naive, ignorant, or complicit church that supports false doctrine and false preachers. Did that come home? This is why I told you and I said time I'm preaching this text, how many of you remember when you supported false doctrine and false teaching and heresy and, 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 and heterodoxy, right? And you did it ignorantly and unbelief. Well, you are a donkey being ridden by Balaam and he rode you as far as he could until Christ showed up in his mercy and set you free. Right. And, and you know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't see anywhere where the donkey ever writes a letter to Balaam saying, you know, did, did the Lord straighten you out? Because if he did, I'm ready to roll with you again, which means. It would be utterly incongruent for a man or woman to be delivered by the grace of God from a Balaamite type of religion and comprehend the truth of the gospel as it is in Christ and then go back to that Balaamite religion. I'm just going to put that out there to you. It would be utterly incongruent to to be released from bondage to falsehood and false doctrine and demonic worship and then later on return back to it. Does that make some sense? Right. The next time we see that doc, that donkey metaphorically is when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Riding on the foal in the foal of an ass. I had slain thee. verse 34, I think, before I go on. I got a few more things. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. Do you see it? Well, you can say that to any angel, but it wouldn't matter unless it's the angel of the Lord. Because against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So now Balaam is acknowledging the supremacy of this angel as bearing the uh, qualities of God. And remember what God said back in Exodus 23? My name is in him. My name is in him. That is in the Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord. He bears the qualifications and authority of God, which means that only God can do what? Forgive sin. Well, if Christ is capable of forgiving sin, he bears the nature of God. All right. It's important to understand what we're doing is building theology around the coming of Christ. Y'all got that. This is very important. This is why I laugh when people say the Old Testament is not talking about Jesus. That just simply means you're not eating the food on your plate. It's like going to dinner and somebody giving you an absolutely fabulous meal with everything that's needed, your proteins, your carbs, everything else. And then you take a little nibble and you push it away saying, I'm not interested. And then you go out and tell somebody you ate that meal. No, you didn't. Because if you ate the meal, if you really fed on the word, if you took the word and ingested it fully, you would discover Christ manifesting himself in the scriptures deeply and broadly and comprehensively like we're doing. And this goes on and on and on. Uh, Notice what he says. I've sinned for. I knew not. I knew not that you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will get me back. And then he gives another another command arbitrarily in verse 35. The angel of the Lord uh, said unto Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto you. That shall you what? That's what he said before he manifested himself as the angel, did he not? back when he was talking to Balaam in the vision where the word of the Lord came. So now the word of the Lord is showing up in the composite of the angel saying the same thing. Now, this is how you know it's the Lord Jesus. Y'all got that? The next time he shows up is in uh, the book of Joshua. He shows up in Joshua chapter five, verse 13, the same angel. Look at him. Joshua chapter 5. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold there stood a man over against him. Now I love this because what is he standing, standing over there? A man. Right. He doesn't know that this man is an angel because this, this man is taking on a anthropomorphic expression. Now angels can come in different forms. You and I already know that, right? But here he's taking on an anthropomorphic expression. In addition to that, what is his apparatus? He is a warrior man. He is a soldier man. He's not just a man walking around. Look at what he said. Behold, there stood a man over against him with a what? Sword drawn in his hand. Didn't we just see that back in Numbers 22? Same brother. So this one that's walking as a forerunner for God's people is walking with a sword. Because the sword is to divide between the good and the evil, to thrust through the wicked, right? This is God's sword of righteousness. Christ is, according to uh, Exodus chapter 14, the man of war, right? He's the one that fights the Lord's battles for him and fights the Lord's battles for us. This would be comforting to you and me, would it not? But right now for Joshua, this is a ominous thing. I'm gonna uh, lift up, I'm gonna extract a proposition here. You heard me say it, but it will certainly be apropos to what we're dealing with today in the foolishness that's happening in Palestine. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes. Look, behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So I've told you this before you got to be very careful of bifurcations. you got to be very careful of faulty, contra- faulty contrasts are these uh, conflict narratives because that's what Joshua just presented. Joshua just presented a conflict narrative and the conflict narrative is or what we call the faulty paradox of the faulty bifurcation, the either or principle. Are you for us or are you for them? You see that? So now again, in logic and in rhetoric, If somebody sets you up with just a kind of either or answer, they could be setting you up for a Kafka trap. I've told you that before. Your job is to actually understand the premise of that query. Actually also know your position so that your position can be preserved when you answer it. Because in some cases, when you know your position, your position would require you not to answer the Kafka trap. Did that make some sense? Right. Kafka is a actually a, a Hebrew expression of a court case that was fought many, many years ago in, in juris uh, doctrine around statements that were designed to trap you right or wrong. So you and I talked about this before. You know, have you beat your wife lately? That's, that's a, right. so you say, no, you're in trouble. You say, yes, you're in trouble. Right. And so that one is a trap. You know, the way you should say it is, have you beat your wife lately? You put it back in their court. Did you hear what I just stated? I mean, if you have to respond to, hmm, that's interesting. Have you beat your wife lately? If you tell me whether you beat your wife lately, I'll tell you whether I beat mine. Okay, so basically you're throwing it back in their court. And and this is what you and I have been dealing with a lot in our culture around faulty bifurcations. Do you believe black lives matter? It depends. What are you talking about? What, what, what are you saying? What are you asserting? That only black lives matter? I don't believe that. See what I'm getting at? Right. Oh, do you, are you pro-Israeli? What do you mean? Are you saying to me that I'm supposed to be anti-Palestinian? I am not anti-Palestinian. But that does not also make me anti-Israel. I do not buy your Kafka trap. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Right. It's so important for you and I to know that our media is a donkey. And I'm being nice now setting up all kinds of Kafka traps for us to fall into because they tell they're telling us what the landscape is and they're telling us what side we should be on. Right. And you have to have enough authority in yourself to step back and see it for what it is and say, I reject your premise. Does it make sense? it's going to be very important for you to get that. And notice what it says. Are you for us or for our adversary? Look at verse 14. This is what he said. He said, no, (laughs) no, I ain't for either one of y'all. Because you didn't actually bring in the legitimate equation here. The equation here is what is God's will? What is God up to? How does God see this? This is what I was telling you about getting trapped by horizontal dilemmas. I love using these terms. It helps you. It's a horizontal dilemma that Joshua was operating out of, and it it caused him to fail to see that he was dealing with a vertical reality. Heaven was penetrating into the physical dimension for him as it did for Israel just a few meters back in Moab. The angel of the Lord is close by now to help Israel advance into the possession of the promise. Does that make some sense? right. And so, and they, he said, no, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. And then Joshua had the revelation, fell on his face to the earth and did worship, you know, and did said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? There you go. A great, great response. So under point number three, he revealed himself in person. We're almost done here. Let me just walk through a few things. The angel of the Lord is a big mediatorial uh, motif in the old Testament. He is, he shows up in the book of Judges, right? You guys remember when he shows up with Gideon in the book of Judges, right? The angel of the Lord shows up in the book of, um, in the book of first Samuel as well. He shows up in the book of Chronicles as well. The angel of the Lord is talked about prominently by David in the Psalms. The angel of the Lord shall scatter them. He shall scatter his foes because David met the angel of the Lord. Did he not? When David was in his weakness and about to number the children of Israel in preparation for a war, he should not have uh, engaged in. And the angel of the Lord showed up and gave him three choices. And uh, again, so the angel of the Lord is this celestial presentation of Christ, mediation of Christ. Another one that I think is important for you and I to capture in terms of the mediatorial work of Christ, and that is sub-point B, the Melchizedekian priesthood uh, motif. This is Genesis 14, 18. So here Abraham is is in the promised land, and his his nephew Lot has made a just royal mess out of his life. And... (laughs) And as it is in that part of the world, they're fighting all the time. This is just absolutely phenomenal, isn't it? If you think it through, they're fighting all the time. They've been fighting for thousands of years. So Lot decides to go down to Sodom where they're acting an absolute San Francisco, New York fool. And, uh, and he, gets, he gets trapped by a war. And I can just give that to you so you can capture this. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Be distracted from a moral foundation with an ethical clarity that allows you to walk within the freedom of your authority in Christ. And with a comprehensive vision that can see really what's going on. You cannot see the warfare in front of you if you're distracted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye or the pride of life. Am I making some sense? That's the goal of the enemy to tell you, let's eat and drink and be married because tomorrow we die. And really all along, the enemies are gathering together. And that's exactly what's happening right now, as you guys know. And people that are committed to folly will wake up and be ensnared because they're already being besieged about. That's what happens to Lot. So Abraham delivers Lot, out of the situation and saves the uh, predetermined city of Salem, which has a high priest in it. And his name is who? Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread. You see that word Salem? It's a contracted expression of Jeru, Salem. Y'all got that? Salem as Jeru, Salem. Foundation of what? Peace. Shalom. Jeru. foundation of peace. So Melchizedek is king of Salem. He brought forth what? And he's celebrating with, uh, with Abraham, the victory one, is he not? But notice what he is not bringing, blood. He's not bringing a sacrifice because he's not the priest of an Old Testament system. He's a priest of the New Testament order. The work of sacrifice has already been done Christ's death on the cross has already accomplished eternal redemption. And what Melchizedek is doing is allowing Abraham to enjoy the gospel of grace even before grace shows up. Y'all got that? This is what we mean by lo, I come in the volume of the book. This is also by hint, and I can go there if if I had to. And I often get this question because, you know, we have to work through pitfalls in theology the question is often answered you know are the old testament saints saved the same way the new testament saints are yes This is Paul's argument. I think what I'm going to be doing, I'll give you a little precursor on it. I think I'm going to actually for the year 24, go through year 2024, go through the book of Romans very carefully. So Romans road is going to be a pilgrim's progress for us for the next 12 months. Okay. so tie pilgrim's progress with the Romans road. Okay. so we're going to walk through Romans and go deeper than we ever have and and understand Romans in a way. Uh, you know, where we can we, we can learn some more things. Romans is always a blessed journey, but it's going to be very contextual for us this year, particularly when we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, okay? Um, <clears throat> but uh, here Melchizedek is bringing bread and wine, and that is the elements we use to affirm the post-redemptive work of the once for all sacrifice by which we are forever perfected and sanctified in the person and work of Christ, right? So sacrifices and offerings in Abraham's day was already ended in terms of what constituted Abraham's fellowship with God. This is why Abraham is not burning sacrifices in a Levitical sense. By the way, no Levitical priesthood here, no sons of Levi, No 12 tribes, this is why, listen very carefully, this is why, don't get caught up in that crap. You know, that ethnocentric stuff that's going on with Israel, there's a fallacy there on the ethnic level. There's a radical fallacy there on the Torah level. There's a total fallacy there on a civil, judicial, structural level as a government. It has flaws across the system. The internal conflicts are abounding everywhere for them, okay? They don't really want to be spied out because if they're spied out, they understand that their Zionist model is actually corrupt because it's inconsistent. And every solid Jew knows that. They know this. Okay, And, And the point is, is that what we got here with the person that basically they're all lauding, which is Abraham. Abraham's a Gentile. Did you hear me? He's a Gentile. See, and this is what our Jewish brethren actually do know, that Judaism didn't come into identity until Mount Sinai. Did y'all get that? Torah became the constitution that constitutes the unique people of God in covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Abraham was a Gentile. Now, Paul is a quintessential Jew, and this is what he tells us in Romans 4, does he not? Abraham was called in uncircumcision. Covenant already established. So as a Gentile, he's us. And then the seed that he has, has to procure two next levels from Isaac to Jacob and then the 12 tribes. And then those 12 tribes are Hebrews. They're not Jews. Not until they go into the wilderness and establish a covenant in about 1447 BC. And from that point on, they take on a people and nation status. They are a people without a country, okay? And then they actually established their country. I love the arguments that are going on now because they really stuck their foot in a hornet's nest today around what's going on. And people now have to go back and deal with uh, political doctrines like the rights of kings and manifest destiny and who has the right to slaughter people to take land. Okay, so one of the things you're learning here, if you don't see it, is that Zionism is a return to the Old Testament model of, of destroying people and taking land. And the gospel completely mitigates that. Did y'all get what I just said? The gospel completely mitigates the people of God going into the world and dominating people and taking lands. That's that's the reason why Christ was not received by Jewish brothers because they couldn't comprehend a grander Judaism in the heart that had no ethnicity as its distinctive correlating factors. Did that make some sense? Because that's where we are today. And so they've been arguing and fighting about them being the true Jews. And Paul would say, You're not. And Jesus would say, You're not. But see, they don't have to listen to those two brothers because they don't believe in the New Testament. You see, they have to make sure that they don't listen to the New Testament because the New Testament will correct them. So they have to set aside the New Testament, hold the Torah. And I wouldn't even have a problem with that. I, you guys have already taught you to listen to Solid Torah Brothers, right? Because they actually have a better understanding of what's going on than the Zionists do. They have a much better understanding. They understand that the Zionists are hood, hood, hooking and crooking, just like our American governmental institution has done the same thing. So I'm kind of prefacing you guys for a real war that's coming in 2024 and 2025. And you, t- you need to know that labels should not deceive you. Always overcome the superficiality of labels. Get behind the label and understand the contract. It's really important. Anyhow, and Melchizedek, King of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the what? Most High like God, this is such a beautiful sort of, and and sort of um, twist in the narrative. This is God's high priest and he's not bound by an ethnic group. Do you see it? He's God's high priest. He's not bound by an ethnic group. So the Hebrew writer develops that fully. He has no father. He has no mother. He has no beginning of days, no end of days. What well, else? because he is the Lord Jesus. Psalm 110 verse 1, 2 and 3. You guys do know that, right? Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, this is the father talking to the who. Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse two. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. That's David's city. Rule thou in the midst of your enemies. Verse three. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Pastor, what does that mean? Go listen to my last sermon on. I preached that about seven months ago. You guys remember that. Unpack that fully. It's a beautiful metaphor of the people of God seeing the splendor and majesty of King Jesus and being willing to serve in his army. His army is not physical, it's spiritual. That's what that's saying. That the manifestation, the presentation of Jehovah Uh, of, of Jesus, the visible Yahweh, was so full of beauty and splendor and majesty that people were rushing to volunteer to that army. Did that make some sense? They saw his beauty and they were rushing. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. It's a description of the king and his full regalia and splendor and glory and beauty and the people saying I want to sign up for that kingdom did that make some sense I'll just give you that you can work on it in contradistinction to your government that's willing to allow illegal aliens to come into the army so they can get free citizenship how many of you guys heard that before so half of you guys are not paying attention A congressman, probably Senator Durbin, Dick Durbin. He said, now all these illegal aliens, all these young brothers, let's let them in by putting them in our army. And by putting them in our army, give them free citizenship. Now, children of God, please listen carefully to me. Your government couldn't care a hoot about you. Did you hear what I just stated? They, and I've already said it before, and I hope you rise above this. Because, you know, that common person being ignorant and careless is bad enough. For Christians to be ignorant and careless, I'm getting tired of that. But stay with me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not completely tired, but I'm getting tired of it. Because I'm alarmed by it. I'm alarmed by ignorant Christians who don't understand the implication of policies in Washington. When they can overtly in the public with the cameras on, which is, you know, once you are, once you are, once you are on C-SPAN, it's going public. You're gonna stand up and say, my distinguished brother in the chambers. I recommend that we let all these illegal aliens in from China and Iran and you know, all around the world. Come on in and have direct citizenship by putting them in our army. So now I said to myself, the Congress and Senate must really think the American people are worse than stupid. So actually I know what's going on. This is a deeper Descent into the abyss of spiritual darkness and apathy at the cognitive level collectively. Did y'all get what I just stated? A, 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 A darkness cognitively, which means human beings are losing the capacity to hear something said and understand its inference or implications. The American people are the exact opposite of what the founding father said, the only way you're going to keep a free republic is if everybody is equally interested in keeping it. Mm. Did that make some sense? Yeah. Because if you get to the point where you don't care, then you're asking for a monarchy. You're asking for a totalitarian system. And that's what my, my, my dear, dumb, ignorant, naive brothers and sisters are to whom I speak to the tens of thousands every Monday. Yep. Am I making some sense? Just as ignorant as a goose in the snowstorm, snowstorm, and wondering why Pastor Jesse's saying you're going the wrong way. Mm. Now, a goose in a snowstorm can't possibly know where they're going, it's too much snow. And I'm simply saying that what we're dealing with right now is a loss of two things identity at the national level, and identity at the spiritual level. Did that make some sense? You guys getting ready to see this converge and the beast is coming up out of the pit even more visibly over this next year. It's coming up out of the pit. So things are being set up for the third stage of warfare right now as we speak, okay? The third stage of warfare is happening, right? But most, like it was with COVID. COVID was a COVID was a first, second stage warfare. That was a warfare. I'm sorry, you have to know that. That was a biological warfare um, foisted on the whole human race. And they almost got away with it. Do you understand that? Because that part of the warfare is not over with yet. But they almost got away with it. Countries have backed away. Countries have prosecuted some people. America hasn't. Israel hasn't. And those two were at the pinnacle of the discharge of this. Y'all hear me? I just want you to capture it. And you people that are watching, you need to capture it, too. We are now moving into a third stage of the fifth dimension warfare. And it's going to come out pretty soon. And, and, and the anticipation on the part of the globalists, when they bring in all the statistics and look at the algorithms and they do the percentages and look at the charts and wonder how people are responding to it around the world, they know there's a little agitation. Agitation does not equal waking up. Agitation does not equal waking up. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. Agitation does not equal waking up. When a person wakes up, they're more than agitated. Okay, And so we we, our, our country definitely has not awakened. Certain parts of Europe have. Africa's beginning to wake up. But Africa is still in the fog as to what happened to them. Big old boot in their butt and they haven't figured out what happened. Right. To wake up completely requires an additional component from just being jarred by the ground shaking. And, and, and uh, I'm, it's going to be quite interesting to see what happens, to see what happens um, in 2024 around that. OK, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop right here and I'll pick up on point number four on Tuesday. By the way, let me just uh, l- l- let you know we won't be here next Friday. And we won't be here the following Friday, but we will be here the following Tuesday, next Tuesday, the following Tuesday. Got to pray. But we'll be taking Friday off for Christmas, uh, Christmas. Uh, And and I'm definitely uh, enjoining all of you to have friends and loved ones to come out um, next week. It's next week for our Christmas service. Obviously, we want to be able to reach them with the gospel. But um, we're going to have some Q&A now so we can get on out of here. So no, no, no Friday study next week. No Friday study, but Tuesday study. So if you want to come out in full, robust um, eagerness, you can come on out. So now let's just deal with some real uh, conversation for about 15 minutes and we can go on home over here. Brother Michael over to the left. Terry, brother Michael. Good to see you, boy. I was worried about you. You, you doing better? Uh, yeah well we praying for you you're, older, you're over 80 right wow. Don's older than 80 I know he looks good but he faking wow. Don's faking
1: 80? no one knows about all the
0: 50s um, who, who has a mic okay my sister Yes, ma'am.
2: Sorry, I wasn't looking
1: when
0: you. I know you just don't don't have no, no regard I'm, for me whatsoever. No, I was trying to get my thought together. Uh huh. Okay, that's so, a good answer.
1: Um, I did see the video where what video? Um, the, I sent out a lot you of. Videos. Out, quite a bit, but I'm getting ready to go there. The one with the armies, with the, the different people coming across the border, and the one where the um, the man was saying that they were going to make them legal. Yeah. So my question to you is, who are they going to be fighting? Is this part of the one world order? Um, because they from because they from everywhere. No, they would be assumed to be our military.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. they would obviously they would put on our uniform. That's mm-hmm. one. That they are, that they are from everywhere is secondarily important, but primarily they would be working for us okay yeah they're not coming in here to put on the the red army uniform and uh put on you know the uniform of iran and well i'm not saying
1: that but i'm just saying could this army be to attack us yeah of course to attack the people that's your
0: your 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 our army has the right to attack us right if it felt like we were a uh imminent threat okay is that what you're asking
2: Yes, I yeah. just wanted to know whether or not was right, going to be terminated. All right, so
0: let me let me tell you the the um, the actual um, veiled inference of that desperate gesture that Dick Durbin did, and and this is why we have to know that your government the and Dick Durbin is part of the deep state. He's as rotten as, as, as the rest of them that have been around for 5,000 years. Um, here's what you need to know. That element of what is called the um, senior administrative state, that's the f- official name. You can look it up so you, can, so you can inoculate yourself against the tactic of calling you a conspiracy theorist just because you say something that people don't believe because they're too ignorant to know it. Senior Administrative State are the people that enter into Washington and do tenure and are selected to be part of a special component of government that sees to it that their long-term trajectory agenda stays intact in spite of the appearance of a two-party system. Did that make sense? In spite of the appearance of a two-party system, there are authorities and levers and control mechanisms inherent embedded in our government that see to it that even with the visceral force of a fairly rambunctious Donald Trump would ultimately fail at his attempt to turn the ship a different way. Before Donald Trump, It was JFK Jr. And they simply took him out uh, in in open warfare. So there was a policy um, after JFK not to assassinate American presidents. That policy only limited itself to American presidents because we've been assassinating people all around the world. That's open knowledge. Anybody can get that in FOIA reports. This is why American people... Like when you get when you get loved ones telling you you wrong and you, you you're, you're able to read the report yourself. You have to ask yourself, do I want to debate with this person? Because that's what Proverbs says, you know, answer a fool according to his folly and answer not a fool according to his folly. So sometimes you just don't answer them because, you know, a man that's wise in his own conceit, as the proverb says, you can have seven Lord Jesuses to talk to him and he still won't get it. And so you're going to meet some people for whom you can give all kind of data and information and they are locked in their delusion. Does that make sense? Um, but what's going on here is that there's such a low turnout for recruits in America, which is an indication that our government has met a certain criterion for the um, ideological subversive stratagems. We taught you that, right? Ideological subversion, Yuri Bismannov. You start off by propaganda. You, you 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 create enough conflict narratively that you demoralize the people. Then you move into a chaos motif where. Demoralization is met with the instability of of, uh, economics, instability of internal conflicts. The, The pendulum of rhetoric is swinging so broad every three or four or five years that people don't know whether they're coming or going. And by the way, you're in that right now. I told you the narrative landscape has switched from the uh, woke left being the culprits to bad ideology to now the right wingers are the culprits of bad ideology. I told you, don't ever get trapped by the party spirit, because if you do, they'll ride you like a donkey down the same track into the same destiny. That's why you must rise above politics as Jesus did, as Paul did. Are you guys hearing what I just stated? So you can have the psychological and emotional and cognitive flexibility to catch them lying using the same tactics that the other group used a few years ago. You have to catch that. You have to catch that. And and why why are they using the same tactics? Because they're on the same team. It's convenient that the landscape has shifted now And we need to use these same woke arguments of racist, 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 anti-Semitism that they were using, you know, with with, with black folks. It's a switch now. It's a bait and switch. Don't buy Rise above that. Did y'all get what I just stated? I'm not going to stay on that long. But here's the thing that's important. I got one more thing to say. For our military to be as depleted as it is, it's something that they did. Because it, it makes... Well, no, not just that they kicked them out and not just the COVID. No, no. For decades now. Our young people have been watching how crazy and foolish our government has been. And because we haven't walked in integrity as a nation, nobody wants to put themselves in harm's way. Now, people will go in the military to get a free check and for you to pay for school. But but we can hear the war. Uh, we can hear the drum beats. We can hear the warmongers and young people. They not they don't want to lay down their life. We're having a recapitulation of Vietnam now. If you guys recall Vietnam, that Vietnam era, people woke up to the atrocities committed in Vietnam. By dividing those same people, they're all brethren. I have my father, my, my son-in-law's dad on where we talked about the final shot. He was in Vietnam. One day they're all family, the next day they're divided and they're killing each other. That's the dialectical process. Y'all got that? So this is really interesting. I want you to catch this. We have been used to watching this magic played on other countries for Decades. It's not quite home yet, because he said now it's home, but it's coming home. We're on the brink of it happening here. Do you understand that? We're on the brink of that happening here, because there has not been mechanisms put in place to mitigate the need to collapse America to move us into the next stage of control. And the way you convert countries as a rule is you topple leadership. That's, these are coups which are strategically set up. But you topple leaderships after you agitate the people and get them all up in a, a, a lathered, you know, feather of, uh, of fear and, and, and conflict amongst them. Because then they're ready for a change. But that change is not really a change for the better. Except for the larger global elite who want to continue plundering. Did y'all get that? And so we are on the brink. We're scheduled next for internal warfare here in America. That's what I'm letting you know. We're scheduled next. It probably would've happened if Hillary Clinton was in. And I don't say that because I'm a left-righter. I don't care nothing about the left or the right. They both totally pissed me off. I'm completely uh, disenchanted with both sides. I'm sorry. Right, because to whom much is given, much is required. Like, when I think about how much they are plundering our wealth, you know, I'm like, they don't care about us. They don't care about you. And, and I'm very thankful that as a nation, we have been able to endure it. Uh, and, and that speaks to certain things that, that would take too long to deal with here. You and I are the beneficiaries of, being a dominant nation in the world technologically. Um, uh, and, and in many ways, that term technologically actually needs to be expanded out at length. And we will because it's a, um, it's a double-edged sword. Technology has been a uh, a plenary blessing for us, but it's gonna be the thing that takes us to the next level of captivity too. So we will be the facilitators of the artificial intelligence, central banking control system, uh, uh, neo-beast system that will be um, offered up. Our country will be, as will Israel. That's why you see war going. I'm just letting you guys know. When it comes down, it'll all clarify itself, and and you will see. Um, And and it will, by the time that happens, this is where Don be arguing with me for the last year, you know, it's going to be too late at some point. Um, hold on. hold on. You you don't get to talk yet. You know, you do not. Relax. I don't want you having a heart attack. All right. So um, the thing that we all need to know is that you need to be careful not to be tossed to and fro by your major med- media outlets. And you need to be grounded in a sound biblical worldview and listen, listening to, to good people. Um, but that's what that's about, sis, that um, our young people don't want to go in because they don't see a future in it. So that's the part about young people I love. Young people are, are really stupid, but they're beautiful. Now, I love this about young people. They're, they're, and I say that meaning that, you know, they will make a ton of mistakes in certain areas, but then in other areas, they go, no, 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 I ain't that dumb. And they're actually smarter than older people because older people are trained to be paralyzed. That's a whole conversation in itself. Older people are trained to be paralyzed. Younger people are trained to respond. Once they see the enemy, it's on. And, uh, and, and I'm glad for it. Um, uh, another lady, before I get to you, Michael. Uh, my sister right here. Okay, PJ,
1: good to see you too. You too, you too. Um, so you touched tonight about the temple of the Lord. Okay, and before we go there, I want to read... Psalms 11. So when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? So the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on the heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals with burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their Lord. So when the second person is revealing himself as the mediator, so when you touch about the temple of the Lord, then it means he has to stay holy. He has to be holy. So when there's this war between now the angels and the demons, then that tells us that the abyss is open. So when the come when the Messiah then is coming, do we should we have the understanding that he will lock, chain the, the demons and lock the abyss and and we should be with him in the holy temple. Is that what we should expect with this coming? There are two categories in the way you frame that that
0: lets me know that you've been listening to what are called futurist interpreters of eschatology because it's the only thing people ever listen to. People are only listening to Zionist. That's all they're ever listening to. She, that's not your fault. But this is where, uh, this is where um, Orson Welles warned about um, captivity of the conversation, 1984, controlling the narrative. So we have been used to the narrative being controlled and only certain dominant voices speaking. And so because you don't have healthy debate, you don't know that there are four eschatological views that need to always be heard whenever you're hearing one dominant position, because without those other views, you don't get the depth of scripture. And and I know that for a fact, because I've been teaching these views here at Grace for years, that a a premillennial dispensational view asserting that, Uh, When the trouble comes to our world, like wars and rumors of wars, God is um, jealous for his temple. And then you immediately go to Jerusalem. But there's no temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus said it in John chapter four, henceforth, there will not be worship in that temple. You heard him say it to that Samaritan sister, which are the Palestinians. He says the hour is coming when they will neither worship in this place nor in the other place, but they will worship me in spirit and in truth. So Jesus completely demolished a central place of worship. But here we are again, caught up in the horizontal dilemma of thinking of a physical place. Are you hearing me? Your master told you, don't think in terms of that. That's John 4. Then when you get to Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2, where the disciples were just as happy to want to take Jesus through all of the temple. Come on, Jesus. let me, Man, do you see? And Jesus says, you, look, you got 37 years and none of this will be here. And they still didn't get it until after the resurrection. The problem with Christians today is that they're going backwards instead of forwards. And they're buying into a lie that says a temple is in a certain place, when that temple is in heaven, it's the person of Christ, who by his spirit dwells in our hearts, which makes us the temple of the living God. And what's beautiful about that temple is that that temple is everywhere on the planet. And 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 it makes God available to human beings everywhere and human beings don't have to travel to a place. Did that make some sense? So we'll get to you. I'm glad you're raising that question. And we will unpack that more fully. Too many people are presupposing something the scriptures have legitimately and clearly mitigated. Jesus says to the woman, at the we know we know when Messiah comes, you know, we know because they were legitimate Torah keepers. Those those Palestinians. OK, they were really hoping in Jesus and uh, Messiah coming in when Jesus let, let that woman at the well know that you have to think in a higher transcendent reality because I have sheep from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. And if they all came, they couldn't all fit in one temple. But Solomon had said that there is no temple that you can make for the true and living God to fit in. And what that would also mean is the body of Christ could never fit in one physical, material temple. It could never that would dishonor God enormously. Um, And so the third person is denied among um, uh, our our Jewish brothers, too, as well. And so the idea of conversion and salvation being ubiquitous and everywhere in the world is not part of their eschatological scheme. So what's happening over in Palestine, as I've stated before, not Palestine, but Israel proper in preparing for a temple. Is your Antichrist system getting set up? just letting you know now okay that's and we need to be i would love for that thing to fail i'm telling you right now i would love for it to fail mm. but if that thing emerges that will that will imply certain things have been done in our world by which humanity is largely brought into captivity in preparation for a for, forced servitude to a central governing system politically And religiously it's the political religious system of the Antichrist system that they're trying to set up a one world government with its theocratical expression set up in in Israel. You guys got that? That's the battle that you're fighting right now. And you're going to hear more and more of this over the next year because. Israel is in a very precarious situation right now because of it engaging in open atrocity and genocide of human beings publicly before the whole world and being and being uh, condemned by uh, the United Nations and still ignoring it. And America is ignoring it, too, because they're playing cards for a goal that they want to achieve in about nine months. Now, just like I shared with you that our people are oblivious to what's been going on here in America, indifferent to the attack that happened with COVID, They're they're oblivious to what they are watching there. They're oblivious to that optic. That optic is another balloon test to see if people would put up with hundreds of thousands of people being killed and it being shown on the screen now, America has we, we have killed way more people than 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 the Palestinians are suffering. We've killed way more. And, and, and we barely put our cameras on it because they know what will happen when you see the fetus in the womb being sucked out. Mm-hmm. Do you understand that? But what they're doing is spoon feeding you propaganda in relationship to those events so that your hearts can harden. Matthew chapter 24, around verse 14. Can you pull that up? I need help up there. Um, so Matthew 24, 14, please. Um, you have to know that what's going on is a social experiment. Uh, technology is sucking everybody into the metaverse. You guys hearing me? Everybody's getting sucked in. Everybody's getting sucked in and therefore slowly going from vertical to horizontal. Y'all got that? Now, vertical means alert and aware. Horizontal means sleep and trap. What movie am I describing? The Matrix. You got it? This is not hard. So to be vertical and alert means to be awake and aware and to operate out of the the imago day. God didn't make you and I to to lay down. He made us to stand upright. That's the metaphor he used about Israel coming out of Egypt. I made you to go upright. You're not animals, you're human beings. The goal of the beast, which is a reverse motif, is to take you and lay you down and plug you into the metaverse so that all you're doing is thinking their thoughts after them as they train you to do nothing while they engage in atrocities, telling you that it's not. Are you listening to me? Because we just went through that with COVID. We sat through COVID and watched people suffer and die. And we were told that the jab doesn't kill. Did you hear me? Mm -hmm. And and, and that's a a psyop to see whether or not, because these experiments have been going on with the CIA forever, where they take people into small groups and do these kind of experiments with their brains where they actually put them in a kind of torture mode and see how much torture they can endure. Then other groups of people are watching the torture and they're watching to see how much those people that are watching can endure. And then other people, yet and still, are being told it's not torture. And some are saying, yes, it is. But others are saying, okay, if you say it's not torture, it's not torture. So you see how you and I can be made to be paralyzed and not see a thing for what it is and what it implies. And it's moral danger and it's ethical atrocity and not be. Moved equivalently, psychologically, emotionally to it. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? This is why I'm sending you guys stuff with military men and women who are actually on the ground in those scenarios. And some of them are coming back post-traumatically stressed because rightly they're seeing things that ought to abhor them, but not only abhor them, but come back and say, hey, I am not for this. That's called a human being. Also, what you guys are learning is religious folks are some of the greatest monsters on the planet. Mm-hmm. Did you hear me? Religious folks are some of the greatest monsters on the planet. Don't become one. Um, who has the mic? You
1: all right, my sister? Did you have something else you needed to say? Or are you good? I'm, I'm very touched with that because... When you know the truth, the truth sets you free. And so the the, the other part was the angel of the Lord. So when the Messiah is coming as the angel of the Lord, that's as the second person, as the son of God, the the priest of the Most High. He he is the one
0: one this, and your New Testament is explicitly clear. That he is the one that intervenes. What you have to learn how to comprehend is the coming of the Lord in the multiple categories, which I teach our church. Whenever you hear the term the coming of the Lord, do not reduce it to his final and physical coming. Understand the coming of the Lord as has been taught all through scripture is God from his throne coming providentially to intervene in humanity to stop evil. whenever evil is stopped God has done it Christ is Lord of all he's sitting at the father's right hand as the Melchizedekian king and he has stopped he has stopped the war he's the one that allows the red horse to go that's the red horse of war he allows the black horse to go that's the black horse of famine he allows the gray horse to go that's the gray horse of death Christ is in control God is in control of that all okay He allows all these evils to occur so that men and women might wake up to the reality that we live in an evil world, okay? And he is calling all of us to a proper and appropriate response to it, which would merit getting on our knees. This is what I've been teaching in the last Psalms series, right? Call upon the Lord, right? In the time of trouble. But we have not hit that kind of trouble in America. I promise you people in third world countries are calling on God.
1: Right. Oh,
0: we love God. Uh huh. And so, um, you know, we we Americans are under a Truman story delusion, particularly in the religious sense yes. of waiting for something to occur while facilitating uh, rebellion against it. We, we got more. will will that this will be unpacked in weeks and months to come mm-hmm. because it's going to be obvious to you guys. It's going to be obvious to you. Thank All right. You who has the mic? I'll start over here and we'll come back. Go go ahead on, Jashana.
2: Thank you for the um, Bible study. Um, And I appreciate what you're talking about on the um, global level. Um, And as you said, that's a certain arena. Um, But we're also engaged. I know I am often in arenas closer to home, like family, children, and the body of Christ. Um, And I have, I have three quick questions. The first question may be simple to answer. And When, when you look at the spirit of error, under that umbrella, because we, we usually break it up spirit of truth, spirit of error, under that umbrella spirit of error, error um, can we include under that carnality, the world, and demonism, and not just demonism? That's the first question.
0: Well, yeah, which means that all of us are subject to the spirit of error a lot. Correct,
2: and that's, that's what I want to clarify. I believe I, I, I came to that, but I wanted to clarify with you. Um, so they, that foundational question then, um, as believers, because we can be influenced by the spirit of error, when we are engaging people, and i'm and i'm going to limit here in this arena with other believers and we see the the attributes of the spirit of error that you talked about earlier um when you see the profile of the seed of the serpent not necessarily we're not i'm not talking about like possession or anything but just influencing the believer for the believer that's in contact with that other person or engaged in that other person, how long do how long? Forever. Forever? To strive with them?
0: Forever. That's your brother, you don't, what, what do you want? If you look at the implications of where you're going in the trajectory of your statement, you it's a dangerous pathway that you're going.
2: I'm not saying to give I, up on them, I, I'm, I'm saying. Then what, what are you saying? I, what I'm saying is, at some point, do I say, "Okay, I've striven with you. I've said what I had to say. Now I just have to give it to the Lord to let well, him you." Well, you're going to do that it. with
0: everybody. You're going to do that with your kids, right? And sometimes that, that means that. just being quiet after That's, a minute. Uh, yeah, you and I can't talk to people forever That's about stuff. That's what I mean. That's all I'm well, saying. But that you know that, <laughs> girl, you know that already. I right, listen. No, what I what I'm asking
2: practically the spirit
0: of error can be on somebody that you're dealing with, and then you turn around, and the same spirit of error is on you. Agreed. Agreed. Mm-hmm. So be careful. Don't 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 make a meta mega don't make a, a, a meta narrative out of that proposition. I don't know what you mean by... I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm talking about. Don't turn that into a big sort of statement that umbrellas everything that is suspicious to you.
2: That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, so,
0: but I am talking about, I'm talking about understanding that the spirit of error is, is something that fundamentally says whenever we depart... From a proper perspective of doctrine, a proper perspective of ethics, morally, practically, a proper perspective, attitudinally, a proper perspective, relationally, we have to know that those dynamics are in play and those dynamics being in play. We have plenty of Bible to tell us how to negotiate that um, in the different ways in which we can negotiate it until until we can. Obviously, you think about it like this, because we can keep it really simple. I mean, the spirit of error was up on Peter when he said, Lord, I'm not going to let you die. Correct. That was a, that was a, and, and, and Christ had to deal with Satan right there. Correct. Right. Um, but, you know, Peter was his man. Correct. Peter was his man. Peter didn't feel an ounce of, of rejection. He and just this is why revealed. I'm asking the question.
2: Yeah. And I, thank you, because I, I went through that scenario. And this is why I'm not Christ. And I, like you said, I have, because I'm a sinner, I, I can have a bias where I can go into the spirit of error as well. Absolutely. That's exactly why I'm asking the question. That's right. Because I know I can have pride rise up in me, and now I'm
0: sinning. And so that's and, what I'm And I'm particularly at. if you take a, an axiom and, and use it as a constant litmus with people. Correct. Understand it in its principle and drop the axiom. Let let the principle of understanding the spirit of error and the spirit of truth take on a practical manifestation in your life so that it has the equivalent influence on you that you would want it to have on other people and just leave the terminology alone. See, once we capture a concept, We want that concept to integrate itself into our our mind and personality for us to have personal sanctification and transformation. And then on the collective with me and my brother, I want to be able to operate out of the positive principles that 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 axiom allows me to comprehend or see. And that's going to be true with all my brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, on a practical level, you and I are not going to be able to engage each one of all of us equally the same way all the time because there's all kind of mistakes going on all the time. That's what blood is about. That's what forgiveness is about. That's what wisdom is about. That's what knowing how to space and recover is all about. That's what's giving people time. That's what the patience. That's what Colossians 3 is clearly laying out that you and I ought to operate out of the bowels and mercies of Christ, forgive one another, even as Christ has forgiven you, you know, so that that call is to a kind of posture that makes sure that you don't fall into a uh, kind of hypercriticism.
2: Right. And that's the, that's the essence of the question. Right. Is in that practicality and, and like you said, mercy and understanding the sin within myself um, are there guidelines? Well, you're, you're saying it broadly, but I'm, I think I'm... No, you don't, you
0: don't need guidelines. I, I, I totally understand already what you're saying. I'm saying you don't need guidelines. I'm saying that what you need to remember is what Christ has told us all to do when we find ourselves in adverse situations with one another. Keep it very simple. Like, you go, you try to work it out. If you don't, you give space. You don't turn it into some kind of mechanistic set of Not di- a mechanism,
2: victims. but how long. The que- You the can't. Que- you the can't. Question, so the qu-
0: follow me. Follow qu- me now. because Let me help. just
2: put the question out there. Okay. The question is, like you said, go and engage. And that's, that's kind of Absol- where I'm at. Absolutely go and, go and engage. When do you know? When, the question is. When do you know, like you say, to stop and give space?
0: When there's offense, either on your part or their part. Okay, that's the question. Right, no, yeah, and, and this is how we as believers always operate, because if, if I'm pressing in too long, then, then my ego's involved. If I'm pressing in too long, it's something that I am feeling like, see, this is the danger. Once we are, uh, once we are, Preserving ourselves, We are failing to understand the doctrine of mortification goes both ways. And, we're, and a lot of times we're wrestling with people because we want to preserve ourselves. You got to give people room to misunderstand you. You got to give people room to disagree with you. Um, and in and, and that, and, and it does, of course, it doesn't feel good, but you got to give them room for that because... There may be something going on in them where they can't comprehend you right now and may comprehend you a year later. And that may be something intrinsic to them. But it could be something that you facilitated by provoking them in a certain way. We're human beings with all of those kind of volatile emotional components that can block things. So if I offended somebody in a certain kind of way and and I don't know it, and I've done everything I could to try to mitigate the problem. Now I just gotta wait. I gotta wait for me and I gotta wait for them too. It may be six months from now, I realize I was the real culprit in that situation. Right? That's where humility is so critically important. What's the other one you're gonna ask?
2: I think it covers that it's more about the people who watch sometimes that engagement that may be collateral damage.
0: Absolutely.
2: Um, and if there's a need to um, deal with that situation or just say, hey, this is really between me and this other person. And I don't, uh, you know, how to engage the collateral people. But If I, you
0: if- are dealing with people that are in the space of a controversy, if people are in the space of a controversy... I could go deep. I'm not because all these other people here. But if you're in a space of a situation, other people are available to see it and, and, and have an assessment about it. And, and they are they are moved one way or the other so that either they are offended or concerned. You're obligated to explain to them so that it doesn't become a domino effect. You're obligated. You, we got to be careful as brethren. We just got to be careful. We don't get to just act in any kind of way without, without mutual charitable, um, accountability. And the mature person is going to understand that and do everything they possibly can to reconcile quickly. Um, I know you got what I'm saying, girl. I know you, you, you're on my team. Um, go on, listen. This is kind of a weird question. Um, this whole thing with spiritual warfare
2: and the devil having his seeds too—I uh, I get the spiritual warfare when it like gets you to try to do things that are not glorifying God. But sometimes I feel it in the air. I mean, I feel—I feel it, and I don't know what it is. It's not—I don't feel like it's causing
0: me to do anything wrong. I just feel this really intense, like. Negative. That's the flesh. That's the lust of the flesh. I'll help you. You want me to help you? Yes, please. Okay, yeah. That's the lust of the flesh. We all have it. Everybody has it. This is, these are good questions. So y'all need to wake up and get to them. Because honest people will know that we have an internal struggle that goes on quite frequently. Honest people. Hon- honest people. Honest people will know that if God left me on an island all by myself, there's a continual warfare going on just in me. Honest people. I don't get to blame nobody else. And I got to just work with the impulses in my mind. Now, the island is as dry as Patmos. No trees and nothing. But my mind will find something to complain about in 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 an asphalt hole on the island. Right. And because and, and our minds are like that, we're traumatized from little children. All kind of things make us available to the vacillating dynamics of our sinful nature. And this is why the primary battle that you want to have um, mastery over is yourself. If that makes sense. Like if you and I are spending too many, too much time fighting battles against other people, we're avoiding the real battle, which is in ourselves. But getting back to what you're going through, I told you you're a baby and you really are, okay? Uh, you're, you're growing, don't get me wrong, and you're still accountable and you're doing the right thing to build on your character Because of your makeup, you're hypersensitive to warfare, period. And so because of that, you will feel impulses in you that are inexplicable, if that makes sense. Um, That's where you're going to actually learn how to be more counterintuitive so that you can wage war against yourself when that impulse to lean into some kind of dark pathway is starting to occur. You want to be able to have the freedom to see that impulse inexplicably as it is. It doesn't have to have a clear ground. It doesn't have to have a logic behind it. It's just an impulse that you know is driving you towards negativity. Does it make sense? All right, good. Then all we're doing is saying, okay, there we go again. I know I'm inclined to negativity. You're not by yourself and and the enemy the enemy is is dealing i mean our whole world is going through this one that uh, that we're talking about sis and the goal is to know how to live comfortably with the enemy within me and and know how not to condemn yourself but wage a good warfare that starts with humility and honesty about yourself okay that, that so transformation is the ability to acknowledge yourself, assess yourself, affirm yourself, and then adjust yourself. Okay, so and all of that requires grace. It's acknowledging who I am. It's, it's, a, it's assessing who I am. That means I don't have to distort me and, then, uh, and affirm that. Boy, you are a mess. Do you ever talk to yourself like I do? Sometimes I just walk around the house and I talk, man, you boy, whoo. It's a good thing you're not running this country, man. Right. And go, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I don't even know why you use me. I'm so crazy. Right. And then you got to watch yourself because you can go from bad to worse. There are all kind. okay. so you and I don't know the depths of the spiritual warfare at the micro levels, at the subtle levels, at the soft levels. We don't know. I don't want any of you to be scared. Don't be scared. OK, I, what I'm talking about is just being honest about the struggle. That's, that's all. That's all. You're going to be all right. You know, I, I mean, I could go there. I could talk about suicide and all that kind of crazy stuff that goes on within us. I have them. Do you? I could, I could, we could go there. But God keeps us. Yeah, that's really important. You know? Yeah, his, pe- his people are crazy. His pe- God's people are crazy. Pe- people are crazy. But see, what if, I mean, I, you know, but the most interesting and gifted people often are crazy people. Mm-hmm. All right. I got to hurry up and get done. Who else? Uh, any other females before I go on? All my females are done? All right, my brothers. Who, who, uh, Michael
1: so I want to go back to the beginning mm-hmm. when Eve was talking to the snake and then when the Lord came and pronounced judgment and you were saying how when the Lord speaks Satan's not talking he's just taking it but what about when Satan approached the Lord about Job Right. So what was the purpose in the Lord? That was
0: not a, that was not a judgment narrative of Christ uh, pursuing the serpent for his um, assaulting Adam and Eve. This is a prerequisite to that. I'm not a prerequisite. This is a precursor to it. So mm-hmm. the Job narrative is a precursor to the actual temptation that Job went through. Mm-hmm. What the Job narrative is teaching us is that there is a tempter agent called Satan, but there is a God that controls the parameters of his activity. Right. Now that prerequisite, that precursor information helps us understand how Job managed the unseen realm in the midst of the chaos that he went through because chaos came into his life. Right? Chaos came into his life. This is a great question to close on too, right here. This is a great question to close on because God's servant does not have to see everything to, um, to adequately respond to the chaos that's coming into his life. Like Job didn't do anything wrong and all hell broke loose. Do you guys remember what happened? Three horsemen were riding. All three of the, war was taking place. And it wasn't a war 3,000 miles away. It was a war in his own home. And it killed all his kids. And it wiped out his whole economy. Job is a micro narrative of what we're dealing with now. And so, but God wouldn't let Job in on what was behind the scene. Job didn't get to have a pre-apocalyptic vision of Jesus on the throne, allowing these matters and telling us he will intervene at certain times. All Job had was his faith that God would work it out. Remember what he says. I know that when he is done with me, I will come out as pure gold. So we've preached this many times before He goes into the pit. He comes up out of the pit. He goes back into the pit. This is a brother who is not getting any immediate providential help from God in the trial that he's going through. Everything that's coming is unhelpful. His wife is shown up unhelpful. Man, you ought to just go and cuss God out and die, boy. This I'm pausing for effect right here. OK, I'm just letting you know some right now. I'm just I'm pausing for effect right there. Because if anything, the serpent rolls up in her. Yeah. Then, of course, he came through the back door as a scorpion through his three friends. And Job had to deal with that because his three friends thought he was operating in the spirit of error. You see and and, and, and and he didn't abandon them because um, God kept him. But look, saints, please listen. I know we celebrate around God keeping us, don't we? But boy, you look bad while God is keeping you. Like you look bad enough to, for us to want to excommunicate you, isolate you, quarantine you. Right? Because if you read some of the chapters, Job is saying some crazy If I can find God, let me find him. Whoa, if I can find God, I'll give him a piece of my mind. I'll tell him exactly what I mean. I know I didn't do anything wrong. God, you got to tell me what I'm going through. I told you about that lady that's about to pass on me with ALS. And her real burden was that. She couldn't find, you know, anything wrong that she had did for her to be suffering terminal cancer and supposed to leave before December is up. I told y'all that Tuesday, did y'all hear? People don't like hearing, but I totally get her. She's descending so fast and there there are no measures to catch her to slow her down into her descent. And what we do is we look for the cause. We look for the cause. We all do that. That's right. That's an an endemic principle of justice. Am I the culprit for my own demise? Because if I can can grasp it, Lord, forgive me. And then I'm hoping that he actually does because he doesn't have to. Right. And, And helping that lady understand God's mercy in the midst of her misery is what those three men should have did. But what they had done is they had failed to embrace mercy so they couldn't show it. And this is such an ironic thing here because what it shows you is you can be the victim of the perpetration of a diabolical, demonic, hateful entity. And then once you're delivered, not understanding you can actually take on that same diabolical behavior. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Even in the name of Jesus or in the name of God, take on that same hostile vindictive, because what this is about is a failure to get the lesson. The lesson in a trial is not, how come I don't have power to be able to overcome my struggles? See, that's, that's where it comes in at when your perpetrator is dominating you and overcoming you, you can inadvertently want to now emulate them because what you want is that power. You shouldn't be wanting power. You should be wanting grace. You should be wanting mercy. You should be wanting the grace and mercy that would keep you from being like them if the shoes were turned. See, a lot of times, and and this is called self-righteousness. Y'all know where I'm going. Some of you know where I'm going. You'll act like you have the right to do what they did because you're self-righteous. Did you hear me? You're just being self-righteous. Now, all of a sudden, you feel like you're above people and you can step on people because you've been stepped on. Hurt people hurt people. That's what's going on here. I can tell you right now, that's exactly what's going on. And if it's not captured and nipped in the bud and and, and told, hey, lift up a mirror because it ain't everybody else. It's you. It's you in the need of prayer. And if I am not my brother's keeper, I will let my brother turn into a monster and kill too many people in the city before we have to stop him. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? I'm speaking in code. Did you get it? Very clear. Right, because that's exactly what's going on. See, when any of us lose sight of the fact that we're all equal, we're in danger. And it takes the community to rein us in. Otherwise, all the community can do is hide from that crazy Tasmanian devil. And then somebody going to climb on a roof with a 30-yard six and quietly take him out anonymously because we got to have peace. Does that make some sense? And uh, regretfully so, because we didn't nip it in the Earth, uh, I grew up in the hood. I'm telling you what happens in the hood. An individual will just lose his way and he's terrorizing everybody. Grandma, auntie, uncle, cousin. And then the next thing you know, he ends up what? What's the word? And then, and then we go, whew, that's over with. Don't we? Yeah. Whew, that's over with. Now you don't want to say it out loud. Right. But you're glad the terror is over with. Okay. And that's all because we're Cowards. When, when it comes to dealing with it when it's small enough to deal with. And the cowardice is what I'm talking about by being distracted by all of this foolish entertainment. That's called demoralization. That's what Yuri was talking about. Propaganda leading to demoralization and demoralization paralyzing you when the crisis comes. Now you're simply gonna submit to who has the most power. You got it? That's what's going on. This is this is the this is the matrix set up from the fall. The goal of the devil was to take power from God and then train human beings to take power from God. (laughs) Because once you take power from God, you're God. There's no other way for that to work. And and the people that are in the power dynamic positions over us. The last thing they're gonna do is give you the power. You not you win. They're not gonna just say, "Hey, you can have the power." You know what? I'm tired. I'm here. You can have the power. Y'all can have all these. Y'all can have all of these trillions, do you, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm gonna say one thing and, and then close. This is. Did you say what you needed to say, Michael? Good. Um, I said this many years ago, back when we were at the old building, and uh, it's still true today. This is what makes me so mad at them. The amount of money that our government confiscates from us uh, in taxes, every one of us can be a multi-millionaire. Every one, Is ain't but uh, 330 million of us. Probably 400, 400 million of us now with those folks who came over the last couple of years, but still. <laughs> Every one of us could be a multimillionaire over by the money. They, did y'all hear what I just stated? So so stay with me. Don't lose your mind. I want you to be a believer on this. OK, because I already know what you're doing. You're buying planes and jets and charter. Don't don't do that. Stay, stay with me for a second. Can, can you stay with me? Because I want to share with you the danger of both extremes. So poverty will turn you into Hamas, right? That's, you know, that's what diabolical uh, bullies like to do. I grew up in the hood. So you, what they want, bullies like to just keep you under their feet. You know that. And that's because they have a deep sense of insecurity. <clears throat> Bullies are insecure. They have every right to be. Because, you know, if they get a girlfriend, she's going to throw some hot grits on them. They have every right to be. Y'all following what I'm saying? Because you're violating the laws of relationship. And you're opening yourself up to multiple angles of attack that you can't possibly completely cover. So you got to create fogs of war continually to keep everybody off balance. Y'all understand where I'm going here? And what I'm, what I'm saying is that we're, meet, we're reaching a critical mass now because they don't want to give up the power and they are imagining the ability to create a sort of equidistant world of poor people globally for which they can control through the power grid of, of military might and economic dominance and and acclimate everybody to a state of subservience across the world. Did y'all hear what I just stated? That's what they want to do. And just because I'm using data just because I don't have time to give you all the categories of the different people in the banking systems and above, and the technology and the, and the different institutions under those technological systems that are setting up this dystopian Orwellian global agenda, which they're saying to us openly and publicly that that's what they're doing. In order, to actually, in order to actually affect that, they have to create another level of global worldwide crisis called war. That's how you do it. See, they've been doing it on small levels, like I told you, as a campaign for the last 40, 50 years, longer than that, 100 plus years in America, go around, start wars in different countries, destabilize everybody, and then, you know, plunder the resources by putting in their own puppets. You guys know that. You know that. Well, as a global agenda, the global oligarchs, plutocratic corporatocracy is trying to erase all borders and create that same kind of tiered class prison system for the whole world. To put the whole world in a kind of Gaza prison system with surveillance cameras and drones and economic digital complete, full-scale control of the economics. Did that make some sense to you guys? That, that's the goal. Because the world is small now. Technology has made the world small. You have to know that. There was, an inferring, there was an inference, I think, that came from my sister. And I definitely appreciate it. It's just more theology needs to be put under your belt to help you frame what's going on more fully. But the inference is that When the foundations are removed, what can the righteous do? Very good question, right? Very good question. That question cannot be answered in five minutes. That's a long studied conversation that requires humility and bravery to engage in. Okay, That's a great question, because that's exactly what the spirit of God had David struggling with. Seeing a collapse of all the kingdoms around him, but mostly Jerusalem, because as you guys are going to learn on Sunday, what's going on over there been going on since Bible times. And we're going to unpack that. And, And godly people know it's wrong, whether it's in West Oakland or East Oakland. That's cold for my brothers that grew up in the hood. See, when I lived in West Oakland, East Oakland was the worst. But when I lived in East Oakland, oh man, West Oakland was the worst. If you lived in West Oakland, you was on the brink of falling off the other. See, we thought West Oakland was the end of the world. At the end of West Oakland, you could fall off the cliff into oblivion. You know, we didn't pay pay Galileo no attention, okay? You, You just go off the cliff because... Back in the day when the police were terrorists, we got taken back to the railroad tracks. This is why I'm super empathetic to what's going on because as we're going to learn on Sunday, the reason the wicked do what they do is because they have power to do it. That's the only reason they do it. That ought to be alarming. All right, let's pray and get on out of here. Father, thank you for your mercy and kindness. We sure do. Thank you for the people around the world standing up, saying something. Uh, Give us the wisdom to deal with this foolishness. As we go our way, give us troubling mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.